This is History West Midlands. This is the story of the man Joseph Chamberlain described as Birmingham's ambassador to America, George Dawson. When Dawson toured the United States in 1874, he was the star turn in James Redpath's pioneering lecture circus and spoke in major cities such as Boston and Philadelphia and the small towns of Ohio. America deeply impressed Dawson, and America was equally impressed with him. His trip cemented the association between Birmingham, its Shakespeare Library and the United States. Now, the director of the Everything to Everybody project, Professor Ewan Fernie, and its American lead and international champion, Professor Catherine Scheil of the University of Minnesota, tell the publisher of History West Midlands, Mike Gibbs, the story of the tour. Ewan, can we ask you to begin by just giving us a brief pen portrait of George Dawson? George Dawson came to Birmingham as a young man in 1844. He became the founder of something called the Civic Gospel. That was a new movement that transferred all the passion and the sense of mission of religion into local civic life. Culture was at the heart of that. And as part of Birmingham's commitment to culture, George Dawson founded what was the world's first great Shakespeare library for all the people of the city. And was he well-known and well-recognised throughout the UK at that time? He was. Charles Kingsley, who wrote The Water Babies and was a famous Christian socialist, said that Dawson was the greatest talker in all England. And actors came to hear. Dawson was also a, an unconventional preacher. Actors came to hear Dawson and learn their craft from him because he was such a powerful and magnetic figure. And as we'll hear later today, he, he was invited to speak in America as one of England's finest orators. Catherine, here in Birmingham, we've forgotten about George Dawson. Was he well known at the time in the United States and how was he regarded? I think he was. We actually have a couple of records of Americans who travelled to the UK and heard Dawson speak here. For example, the American journalist and women's rights advocate Margaret Fuller in At Home and Abroad or Things and Thoughts in America and Europe wrote about hearing a young Dawson speak in Birmingham in 1848. In Birmingham, I heard two discourses from one of the rising lights of England, George Dawson, a young man of whom I had earlier heard much in praise. He is a friend of the people in the sense of brotherhood, not of a social convenience or patronage. In literature, Catholic. In matters of religion, anti-sectarian. Seeking truth in aspiration and love. He is eloquent, with good method in his discourse, fire and dignity when wanted, with a frequent homeliness in enforcement and illustration, which offends the etiquettes of England, but fits him the better for the class he is to address. His powers are uncommon and unfettered in their play. His aim is worthy. He is fulfilling and will fulfill an important task as an educator of the people. Also, William Wells Brown, who was an African-American abolitionist, escaped from slavery and came to the United Kingdom in the 1850s. He heard Dawson speak in Coventry, though the content of Dawson's lecture was less than complimentary to Americans. Huh. 
Dawson was a thin-faced, spare-made, wiry-looking man, with rather a dark complexion for an Englishman, who ended to the stamping of feet and clapping of hands. Dawson remarked that, "'It is laughable to see the pains an American takes to appear national. He will soon explain to you that he is not an Englishman, but a free-born citizen of the United States.' with a pretty considerable contempt for them Britishers. These notions make an Englishman smile. The Americans are a nation without being a nation. William Wells Brown did not record a reaction to Dawson's mockery of American speech and provincialism, but as a black American, he was not in favor of his home country at the time, so I think he would have been delighted to hear his country mocked. So Dawson was well-known and well-recognized in the United States? Yes. In fact, when he came to America in 1874 to do his lecture series, he received top billing by James Redpath, who ran the lecture series that Dawson was part of. So Dawson was the featured speaker, you know, the highlighted event of that fall of 1874 season. And was there a great interest in Shakespeare in the United States at this time? Great interest in Shakespeare. In fact, a lot of Dawson's ideas about Shakespeare and civic activity really resonate with the founding of American Shakespeare Clubs in the 1870s, which really extended all the way to the Second World War. What were the Shakespeare Clubs? So these were informal, mostly grassroots groups, although there were some formally established in Philadelphia and Boston, but most of them were run by women. There were some co-ed, but the majority of them were run by women, in small towns and large towns alike, really across the whole country. They would meet to read Shakespeare. They would study Shakespeare, write essays on Shakespeare, start local libraries. And most of the clubs engaged in some sort of civic activity, like advocating for education or advocating for the right to vote for women, that sort of thing. Catherine, were these Shakespeare clubs that you just described, were they very much focused on the east coast of the US or did they spread into those new lands that were being opened up? Very much spread into the new lands. I mean, they're, of course, up and down the whole east coast, but really in the rural south, in the American west, a lot of the mining towns in Colorado had Shakespeare clubs. So, in fact, there's one anecdote from Oklahoma about a husband and wife starting their Shakespeare club just after the husband finished driving the last stake in the ground. And a lot of these towns, the train station would be set up and then the Shakespeare club would be the next piece of establishing the city. Ewan, was it normal to have this exchange across the Atlantic of culture from Birmingham to the United States at this time? No, I don't think so. I mean, they, Americans are greatly interested in British lecturers and, and actors and, and vice versa. So Dawson had met Emerson and shared a lecture platform with him in the UK in, in 1848, right at the start of his career. Dickens had famously been to America and wowed American audiences, although he rather fell out of love with America. Charles Kingsley, another major British writer who said Dawson was the greatest talker in the country, went to America in 1874, as did Dawson. But Dawson was, in Joseph Chamberlain's phrase, Birmingham's ambassador to America. So he was there as Brummagem Dawson, as Carlyle called him. And he was something new. 
But he's also, it's worth saying, he, the Americans don't see him as a provincial. They see him as the great English lecturer, and he's billed as such. In fact, Catherine and I were looking at some of the adverts, and we were amused, we were amused to see one where he was described as a great English speaker at last. <laughs> <laughs> and who invited him to the United States? Dawson was invited by his agent, James Redpath, who was a really interesting person. So James Redpath was a leading abolitionist. He worked as a journalist during the Civil War, co-edited Jefferson Davis's History of the Southern Confederacy, wrote for the New York Tribune. Um, So he was always kind of ahead of the curve in terms of progressive issues. He advocated for women, and his lecture series was actually the first to include African-American entertainers. And you said... Dawson's agent. That sounds almost theatrical. What did it you- was very much. So Redpath organized this lecture series, and his idea was that he would set up the lecturers, and then towns across America could subscribe, and they could get this amazing panel of lecturers for one price, rather than having to arrange you know, individual speakers. So if you subscribe to Redpath's Lyceum, you got the full range of speakers. So in 1874, Dawson was the top billed speaker that year. And did Dawson get paid to do this? He did. We're still actually tracking down the intricacies of that. But in one letter, he talks about getting 900 pounds from his American tour. Profit. Which is a lot of money, about 56, 58,000 pounds in our money. So we're almost talking film star right. quality right. here. I mean, it's really too bad Dawson didn't live much longer than after his American tour because had he come back, which he wanted to, mm. you know, he could have amassed quite a fortune, mm. I would think. And um, where did he speak? Just at universities or at uh, the Shakespeare clubs that you referred to earlier? Well, we're still trying to track down exactly where Dawson spoke. We've come across several accounts of where he would have liked to go. You know, so I guess he was a big dreamer. He talked about going to the Bahamas and to Jamaica. Don't we all? To, I know. <laughs> so a man ahead of, ahead of his time. <laughs> so we're, you and I are still trying to pin down where he actually went versus where he wanted to go. So, for example, according to one newspaper account, he had planned to go all the way out to Utah before the actual lecture series began, do kind of vacation in the American West and then head back. But I think the logistics of that ruled it out. According to another account, he wanted to go all the way out to San Francisco and the Yosemite Valley first, and then come back to Boston, New York, Chicago, and do his lecture tour. And were the audiences that he was speaking to, were they universities or schools or academic institutions? Or did he actually go out and speak to the community? He did. And in fact, there are quite a variety of locations where he spoke. For example, in Boston, where he began his tour, he opened at Music Hall. That was the uh, original home of the Boston Symphony, and then spoke at Horticultural Hall, also an older building in Boston. But then he did another tour through rural Ohio. So he went by train, which he was really interested in, Mm -hmm. through a lot of the small towns of Ohio. And at the time, Ohio was considered a frontier area, so much more rustic than you would think about Ohio today. And what did he talk about? Not what you might expect, actually. I mean, his opening turn was a lecture he gave. We're not sure if he wrote it specifically for the tour, but on great men's wives. And it's (laughs) (laughs) from Luther to, you know, Milton to the present day. And we're wondering about why he did that. We think 
partly, don't we, Catherine, that it was Redpath's politically progressive taste, which resonated with Dawson. So it sounds an odd subject to us, but actually to get behind great men, I mean, that cliche behind every great man is, I think, part of the impetus there. And Catherine's found a newspaper report which commends it for its moral. And we think the moral is, Catherine, that... Don't marry a woman who's not your friend as well. So you had this combination of practical advice that you could take away from the lecture, but also an educational component. So you you would learn about the wives of great men, but then you would also have a takeaway, you know, that you could use in your own life. I think Dawson's recommending companionable marriage, marriage between equals. And he's doing that as the great speaker from England at last, who really has a message for Americans in their domestic life. Was Dawson married or was he? He was was married. (laughs) Dawson was married and to a woman who was interested in the education of women and and ran classes in Birmingham for working class women. The working class women weren't entirely amenable to her classes and to to, 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 to her great credit, Susan Dawson said, "Okay, let's try this again. Um, the expedient she came up with is that they should loosen their stays first. So they should, you know, these rather restrictive, decorous forms of dress should be, you know, they should literally unbuckle and relax and so forth. And then they went a lot better. But Dawson's wife is not with him in America. And the person he really seems to have missed was Samuel Timmins, who was his right hand man at the Shakespeare Library, <laughs> of whom more later. And to whom he writes. To whom he when writes. He's in America. That's right. We've seen yeah. letters to Timmins. So he reports to. Timmins, doesn't he, on these... He's interested in everything. The lecture tour is one thing, but he's Dawson's also... We've seen a, a letter where he visited... Um, seances. Seances. Lecture halls. halls prisons. Schools, sports. including schools for black children. And he looks at the public buildings, so that Dawson of the Civic Gospel is very, very present there too. What was the response from the American audiences to this big, bearded philosopher from Birmingham. By all accounts, he was very successful. So we've come across a number of newspaper articles, first of all, praising him as having a strikingly handsome face, praising his appearance, but also his warm, casual style. Mm. So there's one description from a Boston newspaper talking about how he was peculiarly friendly and had a winning smile, and they praised his way of leaning forward on the desk and talking with his hands crossed, as if he were addressing a group of friends around a social fireside. Yeah, that's a very interesting description of Dawson's characteristic stance. And there's a very almost life-size portrait of him which hangs to this day in the Birmingham Midland Institute where he's doing exactly that. He's leaning on his lectern, confidentially looking at his audience with his hands linked and lots of other reporters remember this stance. It was obvious, it sounds rather unremarkable perhaps to us, Dawson spoke to you as if he was your intimate friend. He spoke to large audiences as if he knew you, and that's one of the secrets of his success. And Margaret Fuller, who Catherine mentioned earlier, said there was a sort of an extraordinary homeliness about Dawson, which was outrageous to the etiquette and decorums of English audiences. But we have a hunch that it would have made him particularly popular in America, where they could do without those sorts of old-fashioned encumbrances. So Dawson was very well adapted as a successful speaker to American. Also in Philadelphia, not just in Boston, but in Philadelphia, he was well-received. So the Philadelphia Inquirer praised him for not having the tragic outbursts of some of the previous speakers. (laughs) And they noted that he wins and retains the sympathy of his audience. 
So he also did the Wives of Great Men lecture in Philadelphia, and the Philadelphia newspaper described it as a delightful recital of historical facts for which he emphasized a moral as well. So they they obviously picked up on the fact that he's giving you a bit of history, but also a moral. Did he have groupies? Well, I don't know that he had groupies in the general population, but the Shakespeareans in America were definitely taken. taken. In fact, Joseph Crosby, he's the amateur Shakespearean from rural Ohio, found out that Dawson had been lecturing in Marietta, Ohio, and he was really irritated that he didn't know, no one told him, and he could have just popped up to Marietta to hear Dawson. So at least in terms of the amateur Shakespeareans and the correspondence that you and I have been looking at, there's a lot of kind of buzz about Dawson's celebrity. And he did pack out the halls, didn't he, Catherine? And there was standing room only when he preached in Philadelphia, I think. Yes, I think the anecdote is that some people had to be turned away. There was such a crowd there. And what did he speak about in relation to Shakespeare? Interestingly, he... (laughs) He doesn't appear to have spoken. He certainly advertised and celebrated and fated at great, you know, ceremonial occasions as a great Birmingham and British Shakespearean. But Redpath seems to have commissioned lectures on other topics. I mean, again, interestingly, the other thing you'd think that Dawson would be engaged to speak about is civic reform, political change. Not especially. He speaks about figures from the past, from England's past, from its literature. He speaks about peeps. He speaks about ill-used men is another of his turns. (laughs) I don't know that he felt especially ill-used. but So he seems to have been engaged to speak almost off base, really. At that time, he was becoming famous for giving biographical lectures about great English figures from history and literature and art and And his old friend with whom he shared a lecturing platform, Emerson, is famous for his lectures, Representative Men. And every American school child, I think I'm right in saying, Catherine, knows of that collection of speeches. Dawson's biographical lectures are infinitely more various. He speaks about far more subjects. And in a way, to his audiences, Dawson's animating English history as a real living thing. And he's offering that to American audiences. But I think politically, one thing that's easy to miss for us, because it just sounds like a load of biographical lectures, is to take all these people seriously, the greats, but also their wives who might not otherwise be paid attention to or ill-used men, not just celebrated men, is to suggest the sort of politics that Dawson actually was interested in, where everybody's taken seriously, where anyone can make a mark. And I think that's the political power of what he says in America. And I think that's also why he's he's a British lecturer, but a British lecturer who can speak to the new world. And do we know what he thought of American society at that time? He seems to be very interested in getting to know American society and American culture. So he published two essays, both in the Gentleman's Magazine, one about Ohio, about traveling through Ohio by train and He talks about getting to know the common people. And then a second essay on Niagara, Mm -hmm. Niagara Falls. So he talks about the commercialism there, but also the natural beauty of the area. Mm -hmm. So, in fact, these essays don't talk too much about his lectures. They're more about getting to know the people and the customs of the country. Yeah. And did he fall in love with America? I think he did. And we've already found a couple of references in the archive to him wanting to go back. He did, and he fell in love with the American people, it has to be said. I mean, Catherine's perhaps too modest to say so, but he, when he speaks of America before going, he can be a bit offhand and a bit sort of 
joshingly insulting, really, about American ambition and about American provincialism. But when he comes to America, he writes to Timmins from America and he publishes about America. One of his great themes is the extraordinary politeness, generosity, grace, friendliness of the American people. He's really struck with that. It's not just sentimentalism or politeness on his part because he does criticise things about America as well, doesn't mm-hmm. he? I mean, he hates the liquor laws. He thinks they're absurd. In uh, what way? He, thinks he couldn't get a drink. He couldn't or... get a drink readily, and he, but he does get round that, doesn't he? Well, I think, yeah, he's intrigued by the process of getting a drink. So I think you have to pay one person and then a separate person serves you the drink so that it's not the same person that you're paying and that's serving you the alcohol. So he's really intrigued by those types of customs. He is, but he thinks it's a terrible waste of human ingenuity and he complains about it and he offends American opinion. These are the main liquor laws, aren't they? Mm -hmm. They're known as. And of course, we might think that's a sort of liberal British view, but in Birmingham, you know, there would be a lot of sympathy for the temperance view as well. So that's an interesting one. He does complain about commercialism, doesn't he, the encroachment Mm -hmm. of commercialism. He loves Niagara. He notes that there's a kind of tourist industry already, has a nice little anecdote where he says just across the road, really, from Mm -hmm. Niagara Falls, there's a theme park with live buffaloes, wigwams, and what he describes as a little squirt, (laughs) which is is a fountain which he just thinks is ludicrous as compared to the great falls (laughs) just behind it. But then he praises the falls and says those British observers who have criticised it really haven't done it justice. He also complains about American corruption. He does, doesn't mm-hmm. he, about the corruption that infests its bureaucracy. At the same time, he says America shows the way to the future in a lot of ways. He says he's not interested in cities where you build palaces and you build hovels anymore. His is the romance of the future. And he loves American domesticity, which gives a decent home to all. And he loves that about Philadelphia, which he calls the city of home. And that's interesting from a Birmingham point of view. He looks at houses and housing. He praises Disraeli, the Conservative Prime Minister, back home for stressing domesticity. So in Birmingham, he's looking at making big institutions, public institutions. In America, he's looking at decent housing. He's also interested in the American frontier. So his initial plan to go to San Francisco, that would have been on the Transcontinental Railway, which had just been set up a few years before Dawson got there. So his initial plan was to be part of that new American frontier and really see the uncivilized country. An American society at this time was really very much in a state of flux. What were his reactions to that? Dawson, as you'd expect, does have views on that and he responds to history as it happens. So during the American Civil War, he speaks about it and he takes a complex position He's absolutely an abolitionist. He hates slavery as an abomination. He says that there's a kind of sacred responsibility not to return any fugitive slave to slavery. He's always consistent on that. But it's also true that he has some sympathy for the South's desire for independence. You know, he's a bit riven on all of this. He thinks on the one hand, a union is a union and he compares it to marriage. And yet at the same time, he believes in the possibility of freedom. He's not for protectionism. Does he visit the South? He He talks about going to New Orleans, and that's one of the tantalizing details in the archive that we still have to track down. So is that a place he wanted to go, or is that a place he actually visited? And his agent, as Catherine says, his American agent is an abolitionist, 
working in the South. So. And Dawson was a major figure in Birmingham at this time. How was his visit being reported back in Birmingham? There's a lot of interest in Dawson's visit to America and Dawson's lectures are reported and the satirical press prints accounts of Birmingham in an American accent in letters purported to be from Dawson and then says, actually, they're not really below. So obviously it's a bit of a sensation. And when Dawson comes back, he's engaged in Birmingham, but also all over the country to talk about America, what it is, what its problems are, what it might tell us about the future. By that point, Dawson is a really is quite an enthusiastic convert. Dawson travelled elsewhere. He'd been to Egypt in 1870. He'd been all over Europe. He'd been arrested in Europe because he was so politically controversial. He'd been to Germany with Carlisle. But he says that he was desirous to go to America because he wanted to see what the new world would be like. He compares Chicago to Cairo, and he says they're really both really great places, really interesting and atmospheric, each in their own way. But Cairo's is the romance of the past and mine is the romance of the future. And that's what he thought America was. And he wanted to go again to the United States, but never did. Is that correct? I think so. Yeah. In fact, he sent letters home, not to his wife, or at least not that we found yet, but to his friend Samuel Timmons. And at one point he writes, this is at the end of November, I've had a pleasant week in Ohio a fortnight ago. Had I no work, no home, no friends in the old country, I should start off now for New Orleans, the Bahama Islands, and Jamaica and not be back until May. <laughs> and he did say also, didn't he, Catherine, in a, in a letter we've seen that, you know, he was reluctant to go home. He wanted to see everything. He says, yes, he says, like a child. And before Dawson came to America, he, he spoke like an old man in some ways. His young daughter tragically died the year before. When he speaks in Birmingham at a meeting to see him off, there's a valedictory tone. But then these letters from America have kind of re-enthused him with Mm -hmm. with life and he's talking about all of the institutions and so forth. And he says, I'd really like to stay, but I can come back. Mm -hmm. Of course, death intervened. How long after he returned did he die? Dawson died within a couple of years of his return. He died in 1876. So these are his last years. So, Catherine, we've heard that America changed Dawson. Did Dawson change America? That's a really good question. Well, several American newspapers carried notices of Dawson's death, so he definitely had made an impression on America. For example, the San Francisco paper described him as occupying in the lecture field the same position that Ralph Waldo Emerson did in American literature The New York Times described him as one of the most remarkable men of his time, noting that few public men in England have exercised greater influence for good than George Dawson. Mm -hmm. And you and I are in the process of tracking down some of the many connections with the Folger Shakespeare Library, for example. And as somebody, I'm not going to ask you in this question because we all know what the answer will be. We've covered it in previous programs. But as somebody who's coming to Dawson relatively anew, how do you react to Dawson the man? What's really interesting how captivative American audiences were by Dawson's tour. So he was only in the States for maybe two to three months speaking, but he was definitely a magnetizing personality. So I'm curious to see exactly what it was about Dawson that was so interesting to his American audiences. 
Well, having listened to you both, I must say, I wish I'd been in the audience <laughs> because I think it must have been a fascinating experience. And I think thanks to the work that's being done here in Birmingham by you and the group on the Everything to Everybody project, I'm sure we're going to resurrect and learn more about a man who is not only a major figure, but was obviously a very fascinating man in his own right. Mm. And I think his trip to America is really, for me at least, give me a new insight into this large Victorian bearded philosopher. Ewan, thank you very much indeed. And Catherine, I hope we'll see you again in Birmingham before too long. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. For more information on the Everything to Everybody project, visit its website, everythingtoeverybody.bham.ac.uk and watch films, read articles and listen to more podcasts about Dawson and Birmingham Shakespeare Memorial Library at our website, www.historywm.com.